Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and a just delightful conversation with the amazing Richard Noble, owner of the Land Speed Record, actually broke the speed of sound on land, 1997, and before that, prior to that thrust SSC program piloted by RAF pilot Andy Green, Mr. Noble built and drove numerous world land speed record vehicles. Someone who I, as a very young child, (laughs) soon after I learned how to read and started cracking open the encyclopedias that my father bought for us, I learned of land speed record competitions and in particular, Mr. Noble and all that he achieved. And so I'm bringing this conversation to you as part of a new series here on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and torontomotorsports.com. What is the name of this series? I'm going to have to go with an acronym first. Uh, It is W-T-H-T-Y-S-L-T-P-T question mark. What does that stand for? Very simple. What the hell took you so long to post this? And this is in reference to hundreds of gigabytes of interviews that have been sitting on my hard drive since I started capturing them for this podcast in January of 2016. That for reasons, I'll say unknown, there's a reason for all of them, but collectively, a lot of failures to launch. Capture an interview with someone and intend to post it right after, for whatever reason, didn't happen. My hard drive is filled with a ridiculous number of these interviews in-car audio sessions, special features, just embarrassing amount. So I've decided this cannot stand anymore. Here we are in America, at least Christmas coming up soon. We've got Thanksgiving this week, holiday, many folks traveling, trying to come up with things to amuse themselves. This is the time for me to start cracking some of these loose from the hard drive and to post them. So here we have What the hell took you so long to post this? Kicking off here with the amazing Richard Noble. This interview, he and I did this in March of 2021, talking about his life, his career, new book that he published. Again, it's almost two years ago that it came out called Take Risk, put out by Evro Publishing. And I would strongly urge treating yourself to this book for the holidays. Realize that in and among open wheel racing or sports cars or whatever form of racing you like the most, land speed record competition, bit of an abstract thing, not so much that's really been a big deal for a couple decades now. Doesn't change the fact, though, that if you want to dive into something just off the beaten path, style of competition and and racing might not know much or anything about, but it is absolutely filled with fascinating stories this is why i open the show by saying this is a good one not because of me but because of our guest sir richard noble i think he's a sir and if not i apologize but i just gave that honorarium to him and hopefully it will stick but take a listen boy i tell you i'm so thankful to have connected with him to hear a little bit more about what land speed record competitions have meant to me and my very, very lucky period of getting to compete directly against Mr. Noble as part of Craig Breedlove's 
Spirit of America program. Oh, boy. Anyways, here we go with the very first episode of WTHTYSLTPT question mark. All brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. Richard Noble, you wouldn't have known this, but you were a person who was held in high regard in the Pruitt household, and especially uh, the person on the other end of the phone here grew up marveling at those who assembled and competed with their land speed record vehicles and you having had your name atop the list of achievers there for so many years. Uh, you were a steady presence as I poured through those encyclopedias as a child and then as an adult having the amazing fortune to be uh, paddocked across from you while uh, a part of the Spirit of America team for a couple of weeks coming in to help there with some engineering items, got to witness your crowning achievement, breaking the sound barrier with Thrust SSC. And then you go and write a book, which just made me smile even more. Take Risk, the amazing story of the people who made possible Richard Noble's extreme projects on land, sea, and in the air. I just, I feel like I've achieved something just by being able to interview you, sir. So thank you for putting together this fine book. Tell me about the the goal and desire to do so, uh, especially at this point in time. Well, yeah, well, because basically I, the thing about uh, that particular project was, uh, Marshall, was the, 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 the workload was simply fantastic. And, uh, of course, we moved on to one or two other projects after that. And always in the back of my mind was this thought that, uh, you know, I haven't really thanked enough of the people who helped us. You know, obviously the sponsors got a huge amount of publicity, et cetera, but it's the other people who uh, who um, basically stuck their necks out for us. And I wanted to cover a bit of that. And also um, I felt strongly that uh, we got a bit of a problem in Britain because uh, it's uh, turning into a very odd hierarchical sort of country, you know, and it doesn't take any risk. And, uh, you know, we, we've just, we're just coming out the back end of the COVID now. And uh, we've got to get people innovating like never before. So I put the two together, and hence the book. <laughs> and by my good friends at Evro, who very kindly pr- published it for us. And I'm so glad you enjoyed it. It's truly. Uh, I purchase many, many motor racing books, whether they are uh, autobiographies or whatever they might be. And in yours, I took delight in the fact that the style of production is one where, as you mentioned, you name many, many people and call out the very unique things they did or special things they did to facilitate so many of your projects, but also the the style of it isn't a first person narrative from uh, cover to cover. You bring into this a lot of the conversations that took place to make it feel as if the reader is back in 1978 at name the place or wherever really appreciated that style of presentation, but let's, let's take things a little bit more personal really to kick off here. Where did your interest in land speed records develop? Where did this passion take root in you? Because clearly despite all the things you've done professionally, any companies you might've worked for, this has been the eternal flame in your life. Yeah, you're dead right there, Marshall. Yeah. 
No, it started when I was age six, and uh, I come from a military family. We were based up in Scotland. Uh, this was immediately, uh, really, after World War Two, and um, I um, and it was a very boring place. My dad was in the army, and uh, it was nothing but soldiers everywhere. <laughs> and um, uh, one day, he took us for a drive around uh, Loch Ness, the huge, great Loch, twenty twenty-three mile long Loch, there. And uh, John Cobb was going for the water speed record. And I saw this boat, which was called Crusader, and it was absolutely mind-blowing. And um, I sort of got turned on then. Then I then realized that there was a land speed record, and it was so much faster. I thought, aha, right, this is where we go. And um, I suppose what had to happen was I had to flog through um, um, years of uh, industry and experience, etc., to get to a point where I could actually get out and promote these things and get enough credibility to uh, to get the programs going. But uh, it's been a long, hard haul. But um, as you well know, these land speed record projects are the most exciting thing you can do on God, uh, God's earth. What I really loved getting into the book, talking about first projects, was <laughs> was laughing and also mesmerized by your efforts putting together what became known as thrust one. Uh, and there was a feeling, and I don't mean this in a disrespectful way, but it has the feel, had the feel of the proverbial backyard project, a bunch of mates getting together on the weekend to turn wrenches on something. Uh, not saying that's all it was, but it could have just as easily, it feels like, been a drag race car. Ah, you know, we're going to take our friends so-and-so, go to the local drag strip, have yep. some fun. Except you're trying to go 18 million miles an hour and you're strapping uh, <laughs> jets onto your back. Can you give us a little bit of, of color on Thrust 1? Because it the high ambition was there. Not everything else was in place yet to achieve what you were going after. Yeah. Well, my background is that I'm not an engineer, so let's start from there. And I was very, very keen to do this. Um, and, of course, I had no racing experience. I had no auto design experience. <laughs> I just decided I'd got to have a go at it. And the simplest thing to do was to get hold of a, a truck chassis, um, a very early jet engine, um, one of those centrifugal engines, which is easy to mount and easy to install, and learn the game from the base up. I made an awful lot of mistakes, but I did end up with a machine that did 200 miles an hour, so I suppose I was quite glad about that. But um, we had an awful accident where we, we had a triple airborne roll which smashed it all up. Uh, fortunately, I came out of that all right, and we went to the pub and had a drink. Uh, and then we took the remains of the car back to uh, back to home and dropped it off at the local scrapyard. And that sort of, you know, we, uh, that sort of uh, helped the finances because we could continue to the next stage. We learned there was no point in uh, in repeating Thrust One. We'd learned everything we could from Thrust One, and we'd learned an enormous number of lessons, which were just so important. And they saw it all, all these lessons saw us right the way through to Thrust SSC. So it was it was it was dangerous. Uh, it was ill conceived, but but it worked well. And that's one of the things that stood out in reading that passage, Richard. Was there was no nostalgia? Oh, this is my first vehicle. Uh, well preserve this forever there was yeah a greater sense of this was more of an educational opportunity 
than a, a vehicular achievement and obviously hurtling through the air and, and having a hard crash, you know, uh, very damaging crash maybe helped yep. resolve what was going to happen to the vehicle. But the idea of essentially selling it for not a lot of money, but knowing that that money could at least help start the next project to apply what you learned. Yep. Maybe you could share some insights on that because the approach there is something that weaves itself throughout seemingly everything else you did, which was don't get overly attached to the vehicle itself. We're trying to learn more to break new barriers through experience. The vehicle itself isn't, you know, some godlike thing to cherish. It's what you yeah. can do next. You're so right. Um, these things are about teams. It's about teams of people, and we can talk about that. And um, they're very much the learning experience. And the fascinating thing is that it's compound innovation. So to get a world record, you've obviously got to be the best in the world. But you've got to, in order to be in the best in the world, uh, you've got to uh, innovate on an enormous scale. So you're, t you're innovating this, you're innovating that. Thrusters, to see, of course, was rear wheel steered. Um, it was an extraordinary opportunity and the excitement of actually innovating like that as a team and seeing all this come to come to pass is just just absolutely amazing experience. So looking at Thrust 2, that's the vehicle that really stood out to me as one in terms of technological leaps, considering where you started with uh, Thrust 1, which didn't survive very long. I, of the things that I appreciate, appreciate Richard, it's that you went and set insane speeds and records with Thrust 2, what stands out as the surprising part is knowing where you ended with thrust one, it feels like there should have been a two, three, four, and maybe a five before you got to what you achieved. Indeed, you did that with thrust two. Can you share some insights on what went into thrust two to allow it to be this really groundbreaking vehicle just as the immediate follow-up to your first attempt. Well, the, the key to this was one man, John Aykroyd, the designer. And uh, John was uh, um, uh, a very ambitious guy. His career wasn't really going too well for him. And I realized that, you know, there's no way I should design a car again. I'm, I'm just dangerous. Uh, we need somebody who's very thorough and really understands what he's doing. And I love the story and, of him uh, effectively rocking up and taking a job. It wasn't so much a long, drawn-out process of, of multiple interviews over and over again. It was... No, no, no. no, no. <laughs> Forceful. It was my good friend Ken Norris who, uh, who very kindly interviewed him. John was very, very persistent. He'd already made up his mind that uh, he was going to do this. That's as far, and I find that very attractive. And um, he's a very, sadly, he's just passed away recently, which is very sad. Uh, he's been a great, great friend to me. And he, um, he's very, very diligent, of very high intelligence, and very determined. And the extraordinary thing about that was that he, he took the basic concept of the car, which I'd come up with, which was basically the Art Arfon's green monster type design with the driver sitting alongside the, the engine. Now, Art had decided on this very original layout because it fitted his truck 
<laughs> which was great. But in point of fact, there was a much, much better reason for this because basically in a land speed record car, um, going, as, you know, a, a transonic land speed record car, not a supersonic, of course, but with a transonic, basically if you have an accident, you're going to smash in the front, you're going to smash in the back. But if the driver's sitting alongside the engine, there's a good chance he'll survive. So that's the first one. And the second thing, which was absolutely brilliant, we only discovered it when we when we started doing our first runs at Bonneville, was that you could line the car up um, against the horizon. So at Bonneville, for instance, you know, you've got all the, the mountains around, and you could line the car up by basically lining up the side of the engine nacelle uh, against the horizon. So that meant you could drive very, very straight. Mm. And uh, John put two fins on the tail of the car, which is most unusual. But this was absolutely brilliant because it meant that... Uh, uh, we could you go into afterburn within I don't know thirty feet of starting a run, and we could hold it. The car would squirrel all over the place, but it would eventually settle down. And eventually, when it was going really fast, uh, I could drive it to an accuracy of one and a half inches laterally at six hundred and fifty miles an hour. John went out and measured all this. <laughs> we were absolutely amazed. But basically, what he'd done was he'd come up with an absolutely brilliant car. And not only that, um, the interesting thing about these, these land speed record cars is, of course, you go and do your research first. You've got a fair idea of the drag. You've got a fair idea of the power. And from that, you can identify, um, you can run, you can create a, uh, a graphical design of the, of, of the run and what the maximum speed is. And we decided with Thrust 2 in the very early days that we would go for 650 miles an hour. And we did it. We achieved 650.88. I mean, it was a phenomenal achievement. <laughs> and it's really John's achievement. I mean, I love driving these things, but uh, it's John's achievement. It was uh, a great, great car. Was very fortunate in the uh, the brief spell that I spent with Spe- the uh, Spirit of America team to work directly with John. And he was oh, just good. such a magical person. His mind was just something to marvel at and despite being a fully formed adult at the time as i might have mentioned at the outset about our interview here i just felt like i was standing in the shadow of a giant so i love the description of the accuracy you were able to achieve in steering uh thrust two one thing I would yeah. love to share, because I, I know it's something uh, you have a very special ability to do. These days, we could say that land speed record pursuits n- by no means what they once were in terms of holding the public's uh, interest and in, uh, attention and such. But that doesn't change the fact that a man or woman strapping themselves into a four-wheeled jet and pursuing uh, the sound barrier, that is a supernatural experience. Can you share, Richard, what it is like being inside of a vehicle from sitting still to getting rolling? Yeah, As you mentioned, surely. being the afterburner, this is just something that, like folks going to the moon, <laughs> there aren't <laughs> many human beings that have experienced what you've experienced. Can you relate what it is like, what that feels like? Yeah, of course I can. But just a quick word on on the public response. The public response to all this is enormous. Um, basically, I was just doing a summary the other day of the um, the number of YouTube views we've had on 
thrust and also on uh, on Bloodhound. We're just over 81 million at the moment. <laughs> Absolute massive interest out there. And um, people people really love these things. Yeah, okay, let's take you through a run. So imagine I'm sitting in the right-hand seat of Thrust, Thrust 2. And Thrust 2 is, of course, a British car, so we drive on the right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you've got the huge Rolls-Royce Avon started, and the Rolls-Royce Avon sort of rumbles into life. And uh, its big turbines are just by my left shoulder. So we hope to God that the blades won't let go. Um, and I'm sitting there on the track, and our tracks are 50 foot wide. We use solid aluminium wheels, and um, we tried them, first of all, on Bonneville. They don't work with the salt, but they do work with the special alkali plier desert that we find at the Black Rock Desert. So we're on the Black Rock. Um, and um, I've just got the engine started. It's rumbling away, and um, I've now got my foot, uh, left foot, because these cars are all left foot braked, on the um, on the brake there, and I'm holding it against the thrust. And there's not very much thrust. It's idling at about 50 or 60%. So I'm idling there, and um, I'm just waiting now for the um, airplane, which is flying up and down the course, to make sure that uh, there's nobody um, got on the course. I've got to be very, very careful with this, because this, these cars go very, very fast, and they, they catch people out. So um, we've got to be sure that the entire course is clear. And, of course, you can only see two and a half miles ahead from the, from the cockpit. So eventually I get a go-ahead from, um, from the course controller, who's, who's now satisfied the course is now clear, hold the uh, car on the brakes with the left foot, with the right foot wind up, press down on the accelerator to wind up the engine to 92% of maximum of max RPM. Wow. So 92% is a critical number. If you go to 92, 93, or 94, the car will go ahead on solid wheels, on, on lock wheels, and that's no good. So you hold it there, and you do your last checks. The car's jumping around a bit. Um, it's very powerful. You've got 35,000 horsepower there. And um, then finally, I'm happy to go. So basically, it's left foot off the brake pedal and onto its rest. It's very important because otherwise your foot can come or can find its way back to the brake pedal if you're not careful. So you've got to be able to lock it out of the way. And then with the right pedal, press hard down to take the engine up to uh, just over 104% of maximum. And, and then push past the detent to go right into max burner. So if you're quick enough about it, you can be into max burner within the first 30 to 50 feet. And that's very, very important. Then from um, sort of standstill, more or less, to 300 miles an hour, the car is all over the place. It's like a rally car. It's squirreling. Um, it's, um, but the one thing you must never do is let up on your, with your right foot. The right foot has got to be absolutely flat to the floor. Otherwise, you won't get the numbers when you go through the measured mile. So we've got, um, uh, what, six and a half miles to go to the, uh, the midpoint of the measured mile. And by 300 miles an hour, the airflow over the tail, the twin tails, the twin fins there, starts to stabilize the car. And it comes, comes, comes very steady. Mm. Uh, and that's absolutely great. I'm putting in very small move, steering movements. I've got about a 25 to 1 ratio. Um, and um, we, the car seems to settle down. The interesting thing about these tracks is, of course, there's nothing to tell you outside how fast you're going except that the mountains move. The mountains are all jerking all over the place because you're, you're seeing, of course, a completely different perspective. 
300 miles an hour to like 550 is boring, really, because it's just more of the same. You've got the engine roaring away there, the thing's really shifting. And, and I really enjoy it. I get a real buzz out of it. And then um, we get to 550, and then we see the first of the shock waves, which sits up on top of the intake, just on just at the front there. You can see a wisp of, uh, of, uh, of cloud there, which is caused by the change in pressure across the shock wave. By 615, you've got the shock wave standing over the wheel arches. That's very interesting, that, because you've got to drive and see through them. And uh, as you're approaching the start of the measured mile, I was always fascinated by the fact that I could see every single detail on the track. It's as if uh, my mental processes had sped right up yeah. and everything was happening in very, very slow motion. Wow. Then uh, you're into the measured mile, and um, obviously you're trying to get the car to the maximum speed you possibly can. And uh, on the best run of all, we came out at 650.88. Then you're into the dangerous bit, which is stopping. So you come back on the throttle and cancel the afterburner. So that cancels the burner. Uh, but, of course, what's happening is that the engine now is, uh, uh, is slowing down. It's not sucking so much air in. The drag is building up at the front, and there's always a danger that this car will swap ends. And um, you've got a very unpleasant period when you've got the engine down to 100% or so, um, and the car, of course, is decelerating. And you've, uh, um, and you've got to count to three. One, two, three. And then and only then can you sh pull back on your uh, accelerator pedal, which pulls back to shut the fuel off to the engine and at the same time push the button on the steering wheel to fire the parachute. Parachute comes out instantaneously, even though it's coming out on 200 foot of, of uh, nylon cable. Nylon's very important because it stretches. It comes out with an enormous bang and you're decelerating between 5 and 6G. So you're losing uh, around about 120 miles an hour per second. And at this speed, you get what the drag racers get, um, which is the... Uh, um, which is called the somatographic illusion. So what's actually happening here is the deceleration is so violent, it's upsetting your inner ear, and you think you're driving straight down the middle of the earth. Um, but that's gone very, very quickly. You're very safe, of course, because you've got the parachute out the back, and that's holding you straight. Um, and then you're down to uh, about 400 miles an hour, and it starts to get really boring then, because it's, it's kind of all over. You know, you've done your max speed, and now you've just got to get the car stopped. And uh, so you've got to sit it out, um, and gradually you're losing speed until you're around about 200. And 200, then you can bring in the wheel brakes and bring it to a halt, get everything shut down, get out the notebook, write down everything you possibly can remember, and then the Jaguar team are alongside, and um, then we're about to turn around and refuel it. So uh, that's a run. <laughs> Which makes me wonder knowing that your mind is switching immediately to note taking and capturing any and all valuable information is there any time required to process what you have just gone through in coming you know proverbially back down to earth uh, you mentioned the mental processing speed which is yeah, we speak about turn one at the Indianapolis 500, for example, with drivers firing through their the Indy 500 at 230 plus miles an hour 
in the processing yep. required to do that and navigate it in a blink of an eye. I can only imagine what it's like to effectively triple that speed and to be able to capture things in minutia, then have to slow back down and reacclimate yourself. Does that require a moment or two, Richard, or are you, were you able uh, to go straight yeah, into I didn't, um, annotations? I just, uh, basically I was, uh, I just went into relax mode, frankly. Um, I wouldn't get out of the car. The others thought it would be a good idea to get out of the car, but otherwise you've got to strap in again and all that hassle. And that's takes time. Remember you're against the clock. You've got to turn the car around. It's got to be fully serviced, checked, refueled and set off again. So it's best to stay in the car. So I just completely relax and, um, then get ready for uh, the next run. But of course there are crucial data points that you need to get back to John, the designer, so you can check that against these figures. So speaking of the move, Richard, from thrust two to thrust SSC, you'd mentioned the goal outline for two was 650 miles an hour, which you achieved. Obviously, the sound barrier is not a fixed number, right? It fluctuates slightly in yep. what it is, but that 650 number, uh, perilously close to the sound barrier was breaking the sound barrier something you were striving for with two or was that something that you had in your mind that if we can get to 650 maybe we'll do another vehicle to go get that sound barrier because again it's not as if you were miles away from it uh, in setting this long-standing record with thrust two marshall we hadn't got a hope in hell of getting supersonic with thrust two Thrust 2 was uh, at 650 miles an hour, was on the point of flying. We were within 7 miles an hour, eventually take off, as John discovered later. Um, and um, it's the wrong shape. You want something which is long and thin or different. Um, so Craig Breedlove, of course, went for the long, thin design with uh, Spirit of America, and that's a beautifully, beautifully built car. And um, we also were up against the McLaren Formula 1 team, who had a, a design called Maverick which frightened the hell out of me. <laughs> and um, then we came up with our very, very original design, which was the Thrust SSC. I thought about it for some time, this, uh, this new car, and um, I began to understand what we were trying to do, but it wasn't until Ron Ayres appeared on the scene, and Ron was the aerodynamicist who, uh, who made it all possible. The concept of the car is very interesting because basically what you want to do with a car like this is um, you want to try and get as much weight as you possibly can up front, okay, because the likely accident is likely to be a pitching accident. In other words, it might just sort of fly, so it helps if you can get plenty of uh, weight up front. So you want the center of gravity forward. The driver's got to sit with his, his or her backside um, on the center of gravity so you can feel the car. That's very, very important. And the fuel tank must be behind the driver so that the fuel, um, so um, basically what happens is the center of gravity migrates forward as basically the car gets lighter. Then you need a long, thin nose to, uh, to basically uh, create the shock wave at the front because the car is going to run behind, behind the shock wave. And then here comes the really interesting bit. When you're doing the aerodynamics on a supersonic vehicle, 
what you do is you take the cross-sectional area of the, of the airplane or the car at its, um, at its widest point, and that is the cross-sectional area you use for your calculations. But what you should be doing is using what's called the net cross-sectional area. So what you do is you, di you, you uh, discount from the cross-sectional area the area of the flow of air going through the jet engines. So if you follow me, you end up with a situation with thrust SSC where it's like a pair of spectacles. Mm. Um, so in other words, you've just got the rims where, which are around where the jet engines were. Uh, there's um, the air going straight through the middle, so you discount that. And you've got the, um, the central fuselage of the, of the car, which is kind of where your nose would go in, the, in, the, in, the, um, uh, in your spectacles. So suddenly you end up with an extraordinary situation where the... Uh, the amount of thrust per unit cross-sectional area is enormous compared with a, um, a kind of single-engine vehicle. So that seemed to be the, adva the advantage. Of course, there are all terrible downsides if anything compromises on this. And the compromise we had to live with was the rear wheel steering. And uh, thank God for Andy Green because he solved that one. But it was a very, very difficult, difficult time for him. And that was my next question, Richard rear steer while wanting yeah. to fire through the sound barrier. And I should just note here, it's maybe overstating the obvious. This hadn't been done before on the ground. No. So of course there's all kinds of theories and expectations for what would happen, uh, upon reaching and breaking through the sound barrier, but there were no guarantees uh, of how the vehicle would react throwing in, I shouldn't say throwing in, Going to rear steer among all the other firsts and barriers and hopes that you were having to uh, crack through. I'd love to hear about the, and I, reading about this, it was fascinating, but if you could share some insights on the decision that came through that we are going to need from a packaging standpoint, we're going to have to go innovate a rear steering system because we can't fit it where we want up front. I mean, I'm just thinking of the, challenges and variables facing the team and eventually into green as well formidable but tell yep. me about this packaging exercise because it was huge well the fundamental problem here was that um uh, with a supersonic vehicle the cross-sectional area is crucially important so for instance they say that if concord's cross-sectional uh was fuselage was six inches wider it would never get to the u.s um, it's absolutely crucial. And our fundamental problem was that we couldn't, um, we couldn't actually position the front wheels to enable us to steer them left and right um, without putting a bulge on the side of the car. And that would increase the cross-sectional area and could easily fail the project. Um, also, Glenn uh, Bauscher, whose job it was to do the, uh, the structures and also to do the wheels and the steering, um, he got nowhere there to actually attach the front suspension. And we were also worried about the gyro procession. So the problem with the gyro procession is you've got these big wheels rotating at huge speeds. And basically, if the car got out of line, there was just a danger that the procession would roll the car. Even though it was quite wide, there was a real danger it could roll the car. So the solution had to be the rear wheel steer. So uh, I was absolutely appalled when Glenn suggested this, but uh, I realised that we we really got a we we really got to crack this somehow. So what we did was he got his brother-in-law's old mini, 
and we built a structure on the back of it and turned it into a rail rail steer car with the correct ratios between obviously the track and the, the and all the rest and the wheelbase and um, and uh, we all started driving it and it was amazing it was very stable I mean I was very happy driving this railway steer mini <laughs> and the Glen achieved something very special there it's very difficult to do because we've got tandem offset rail wheels so one wheel is to one side and slightly to the front of the other wheel. And therefore, the gearing ratio that's steering these wheels, of course, is different because they're, when, when you're putting a steering input in, they're going to be describing different circles. So, uh, you know, there's quite a problem there. But uh, that's what we had to live with. And when we did the development runs in Jordan, Andy Green was having a really hard time. It just wasn't working. He was, uh, uh, and he's not the sort of bloke who gets frightened that he just uh, quietly sort of settles down to to to, uh, to conquer it i think is probably the best way of describing it and um and uh, eventually we realized that the, the secret or rather he realized the secret was simply to put the steering inputs in um at a certain frequency and then it wouldn't get away from him and so he had basically conquered it now, when the car was going really fast uh, on Blackrock Desert on the supersonic runs, uh, what happened was something we didn't expect was we got a shock wave uh, between the two two wheels, and this dragged the the, uh, the back of the car over to the um, to the left hand side, and so Andy put in full opposite lock to bring it over to the right, and uh, that changed the gap between the back of the first front wheel and the front of the back wheel and the car gently drifted back onto line wow. so Andy was quite happy driving along with uh, you know his steering wheel um, uh, 90 to 100 degrees out of line um, as this car just remained straight it was just amazing so really subsonically um, it was a pretty nasty car to drive but supersonically it was absolutely brilliant and uh, I remember one day, I, was, I didn't realize quite what Andy was going through, um, was I flew a plane down the, down the track there. And uh, his track was absolutely, it was zigzagging as he fought his way up the line until it went supersonic. And he was absolutely straight. So, um, yeah, it was a great, great achievement by Andy and a great achievement by Ron and Glenn and all the rest of the team. And Jerry Bliss, of course, who did the active ride. That was, that was extraordinary. That's what made the whole thing possible. There's another question that I had, Richard, was the active ride something that Formula One fans would be aware of, had a relatively limited lifespan in F1, but one where timing wise, it had been banned in F1 a few years prior to setting the record with thrust SSC. But if we're just talking knowledge within the F1 industry, uh, the UK obviously being the, the major hub of F1, I'd have to think there mm. would have been some crossover possibly of knowledge or uh, systems and equipment, but I don't know if that's the case. Tell me about incorporating this active ride system into let's go yeah, shy well, of 700 miles an hour for fun vehicle. Yeah. Yeah. The active ride is absolutely essential. So, curiously enough, there is very, very little crossover between ourselves and the Formula One people. It's a bit of a shame, but uh, the, there is a great difference in culture. 
because we share everything. We share all our information. We put it all out on the on the web. We we've got large numbers of followers and people who are who are following and being a part of it. And we can do that because um, we don't have uh, identical competitors. Whereas in Formula One, the cars are more or less the same, and therefore they're very worried about any kind of uh, data that escapes. So they've got to be very careful. They can't they can't do what we can do. So um, it, what was crucial about this was as the car started to get to supersonic speeds, there was going to be, uh, we believed, um, a likelihood that it was going to del- deliver more lift. We wouldn't know that. Uh, our researches, we, we had rocket modeling and computational fluid dynamics. Our researches showed that, but um, we had to know that uh, it, was it going to happen for real and how were we going to deal with it. So we came up with uh, a very complex system, which was done by Jerry Bliss, and was absolutely brilliant. So what happened was that the car has a suspension system, which is a bit like a, a French Citroen. Okay, so it's uh, it's uh, it's a hydraulic system, and it's uh, and that means we can vary the um, the height of the car. But um, basically, we, we, we never really played much, made much changes there. But the crucial thing was we could change the inclination of the car. So the faster it went, um, the higher the tail went up because the suspension was pushed down by the hydraulics. And, uh, and so, therefore, the nose and the front end of the car developed more ground force. And at the back end of the car, of course, we had the big uh, delta tailplane. And we were now changing the instance on that. It was fixed to the car. It didn't actually change independently. But because the back of the car was raising, that would then generate um, additional downforce. And what we did was we kept well away from a, um, a, um, a, uh, a design system which was, um, which was self-contained. Uh, what we wanted to do was to approach Mach 1 in gradual increments and work out exactly what that downforce should be and what the inclination should be and then program the system so it varied the downforce according to its Mach number. Um, and so, therefore, the system itself wasn't interpreting the forces that was needed. Basically, we were doing that when the car was stationary and feeding it then into the computers. And it was an absolute genius system. So that so much so that the loading on the front wheels, on the well, all the wheels, really, um, was the same when the car was stationary as when it was going um, Mach 1.03, which is the peak. Uh, it's an astonishing achievement, and it was totally reliable. There was another fascinating aspect of this too, Richard, that being a, a realization that fail-safes would have to be sorted out as well in this transition from a land from all previous land speed vehicles being constructed, designed, everything about them being mechanical, hydraulic, lots of technology, not much in the way of computer control systems in terms of the, the uh, chassis itself. Obviously, again, a lot of technology on the engine side, but not in terms of placing faith in computers, uh, managing the vehicle's yeah, attitude and whatnot. Important. And if you yep. could share a little bit of insight on that too, and I know that there it goes into Actually, great depth. Yeah, it's very easy because basically we are the cars are world first. Nobody's ever done anything quite like that before, 
And uh, we've, whilst we've done an enormous amount of research, that was rocket modeling uh, and also the uh, computational modeling as well, um, we thought we knew what was going to happen, but we weren't for, there for sure. And we certainly didn't want a, uh, a computerized system which would um, determine what the loads were. We were obviously measuring the loads, but would compensate for the loads. Andy's job was to drive the car. Our job was to increase the speeds by small increments and keep the car as simple as we possibly can. Because, uh, you know, what happens with an accident, whenever there's an accident, there are multiple causes which cause the accident. It may not be just one thing. And the last thing we want is a situation where the, the, um, a computerized system goes out of control. So keep it very, very simple. Do your research and keep it simple. Looking at the achievement itself, breaking the sound barrier on land, there's the famous photo taken by uh, what I think might be someone in an ultralight of beautiful uh, sun shadow dust being kicked up the shock wave itself uh, at the nose of thrust ssc this is one of these things that again talking about firsts you and your team were the first to do this can you share feelings of the achievement of doing the thing that you set out to do everything that you went through and had to help innovate with this vast and such an impressive team but the act of actually breaking the sound barrier hearing uh the sound barrier being broken can you share some of the thoughts and emotions as that happened yeah absolutely because uh basically we all believed we knew what was going to happen and we had set out to do this what actually happened was that we got uh, first of all we got a record at 714 and then something really interesting happened because um, a lot of the media people following the project said goodbye. We said goodbye. <laughs> they said, well, what's happened to you? And we said, well, we're here to break the sound barrier. They didn't believe us. So we had a good laugh over that. We really did. We said, You've got to, you guys got to understand. This is what we're here to do. And uh, so the media people started to, um, weren't really sure what to do then. But uh, a lot of them stayed, which was good. Um, yeah. So uh, we got going faster and faster, and um, the first real indication of this was a supersonic bang, which was heard by our followers on the hillside. So we had about 400 uh, people living in their in their campers on the hillside watching all this. Yeah, I remember. Uh, I mean, the numbers <laughs> grew and grew and grew, and I wasn't there. For, I had left. Uh, things weren't going so well on our side, on uh, the, the Spirit of America side. Uh, yeah, but, but nonetheless, watching the amount of folks filter in and start to fill the little sides of the high, you know, it, I shouldn't even say highway, the little two-lane road um, and such, yeah. it was fascinating. And they were great people. They really were great people because they were very, very sophisticated and they've got radios with scanners. So they were listening to all our uh, communications and transmissions. Um, we were very glad to share all that because, uh, you know, uh, the whole idea about the project is to share and for, um, for everybody to learn if we possibly can. And the first thing that happened was that they recorded a, ba a supersonic bang up there. We didn't hear it, but they did. And uh, so there was a lot of chatter and excitement. And then gradually, as we got faster and faster, we started getting the bangs. And um, this was quite something because um, 
the little town of Gerlach, the little frontier town of Gerlach, is about, uh, uh, what is it? It's about 15 miles, I think, yeah. from the midpoint of the course. And what was happening there was it was shaking buildings 15 miles away. <laughs> and uh, in the local school, they had a hell of a problem because the, um, the sprinkler system had covers over the sprinklers. And in all the classrooms, the, the sprinkler covers came, were knocked off by the, the sonic bangs. And uh, the, the town people were very excited by this. But um, after a bit, they were getting a little bit worried that we were going to demolish the town with this. But uh, fortunately, it was just like a kind of earthquake sort of thud. Could be heard until 40 miles away. Just and, insane. Um, when we first heard it, there was just a fantastic feeling of achievement. And, you know, and it's a very, very diverse, very tough team. Everybody fought so hard for this. And it's just a wonderful feeling of success that we'd actually done it. Know that this was hailed globally. Also in reading through your book, Take Risk, Richard, I know there was sense that maybe the, the UK press especially in time, um, have not held on to this with as much reverie as uh, it should be held. Uh, can you share a little bit of, of local reaction within the U.S. and also uh, back home? And I'm not painting anything negative back home. Uh, obviously, hmm. the displays, as you know, was it something like 400,000 people per year filter through the Transportation Museum to see uh, some of yeah. your creations and such, but I know that at least in, in reading some of the bits uh, in the book, I know there's also a feeling that, boy, we, sh- we sure did something special here. We sure demonstrated the best of Britain and I uh, wish this was still revered as such and inspiring folks as such to try and break their own records in whatever capacity. Yeah. Well, let's just uh, make it clear that we could never have done this without the American help. We never could have. The help from all the people, uh, the local people who provide us with support and vehicles and so on, it was just terrific. We've got a, a very, we had a very, very big problem with Britain. I mean, we really did because, uh, uh, you know, we'd done our development runs in Jordan. We got the car up to some 500 odd miles an hour there. And now we got to go to, um, to America and we couldn't go. Um, the sponsors all sort of ran away. Um, with the exception of Castrol. Um, and we had a huge problem because I'd managed to borrow an aeroplane to move us all out there. Uh, but the fundamental problem is that we hadn't got the money to pay for the fuel. We needed about a million liters of jet fuel, and uh, uh, we had no money to do it. And to give you an idea, at the start of... We got to be away by the end of, of, our, um, of August 1997. And by the start of uh, August 1997, and we were about 14% of budget, uh, you know. And there was a wonderful moment when the, desi- when the engineering team sort of looked at each other and said, because we always share all the information, and uh, said, God almighty, we're not going to achieve this. And uh, I, I simply said, guys, uh, you know, we've got to kind of stick with it. And, um, uh, and they thought about it, and they thought, if we walk out now because there's a danger that we won't get paid, then they, the team will certainly never achieve it. But if we stay with it and work on it and keep going, knowing that our financial situation is so fragile 
um, there's just a chance we might make it. So they stuck with it, which was great. But um, we were getting to a terrible situation when um, Jeremy Davy and Jeremy Jeremy runs the, uh, the the website. He was the website guy, and uh, I, I said, you know, we need all this money, and where the hell's it going to come from? And I'm failing left, right, and centre. Um, nobody seems to want to help. And Jeremy had this brilliant idea of eventually going out on the web and asking our followers all over the world to um, to please pony up. And um, the result of this was amazing. We, we, Jeremy and I wrote it that night. We put it up on the web. And the next morning, there was 30,000 gallons of fuel. <laughs> it was absolutely astonishing. And some of our American friends were terrific. I mean, there were people buying fuel lots in $500 lots, which was brilliant. And um, so suddenly, we'd actually achieved it. Um, so uh, there's a funny thing that, uh, about Britain is that we are, we're not very confident. I think that's our fundamental problem. We're not very confident, and our, our media loves disaster, absolutely loves disaster. They don't seem to like success. And um, uh, anyhow, so um, we got out there. That was in- incidentally the first example of crowdfunding. I was going to say, it's so brilliant here, something today where folks would not be the least bit phased to contribute to a Venmo, GoFundMe, etc. Here we are mid nineties, essentially, and you're activating a, an international network of folks that want to see this project succeed by helping to contribute in uh, small, small portions. And it worked so well, we'd set out to share the whole project with them. So for instance, when we were operating in, in Jordan, we had cameras in the control, uh, in the control room, we had, um, people doing, um, presentations to camera all the time so everybody all over the world really felt in as part of it and we were being followed i think about by about 150 countries and uh, that really paid off and in the end when we finally got it uh we were the the largest website in the world for two days so um (laughs) that was a great success so once back in england um it was an extraordinary situation they didn't know how to deal with this uh, because we are not, um, we're not sort of media folk. We're not celebrities. We're just ordinary. We're just ordinary people. That's that's what we are. And um, uh, and we've got the car back and everything else. And then suddenly extraordinary things happened. Um, we were based at uh, a company called Dera at Farnborough Airport, there where we had a hangar. And from time to time, members of the royal family suddenly appeared, mm. which was <laughs> really interesting. Um, it was absolutely fascinating. And uh, uh, so that was really interesting. And, and um, you know, and then, of course, we then had to deal with the financial circumstances. And the financial circumstances were that we were heavily in debt. I kept the whole thing going because basically we got to finish and we got to succeed. And so we got a hell of a lot of money to make. And um, there was a very interesting scenario when um, uh, we were... Um, <laughs> that's right. We, we, uh, that's right. Rose Rice had given us a special evening uh, for the team, which is lovely, which is really good. And there was a sort of drinks party first. And, the, and a director of some enormous bank appeared and said, uh, we would like to give you some money. So I said, well, that's very kind. So we want our na- name on the side of the car. And I said, no, you don't. <laughs> because you, you contributed absolutely nothing to the project. And what we will do is we will earn our way out of this. He was very angry, my, you know, but uh, he went away and we earned our way out. It's, um, it's a funny thing, this, uh, uh, this COVID 
terrible COVID situation because we've lost 126,000 people. But um, basically, it means that Britain is going to have to change big, big time. And hopefully, uh, you know, we're going to start seeing people innovating much, much more. And the old, the old British way of doing things falling away. I really hope so. It could be a very exciting time, but at a terrible cost. Amen. Two things that stand out to close, Richard. One is a person that I'm very fond of and I know is uh, certainly an American hero, that being Craig Breedlove. He the being one and a, only, yeah. yes, a standard bearer in land speed achievement uh, for decades upon decades. And with your passion and interest, all of a sudden the two of you became rivals and rivals don't that does not have to have a negative connotation to it but tell me about the relationship that you developed with craig knowing that this at least as my brain works i think of your uh, your shared attempts at claiming and owning the uh, land speed record a bit like a tennis match volleying back and forth over many many years yeah. trying to uh, win the match tell me about craig knowing that that was the person always there uh, attempting to oppose and win. Well, Craig is just terrific, absolutely terrific. I mean, I've I've known Craig for a long, long time, and also uh, his rival Art Alphonse. And uh, Art actually came to come and see us in Britain just uh, to see Thrust SSE being built. And um, but Craig was just an amazing guy. He um, he kept going against all circumstances. He had some horrendous experiences, but he kept going. And he got a great sense of humor. And I hope he's still working on another car. <laughs> Knowing Craig, he probably is. But um, next time I'm, um, I'm over in California, I'll go and see him and we'll end up in a bar together. And that'll be great. <laughs> I love the sound of that. Let's see. How about we close on the future? That being pursuit of whether it be a thousand miles an hour or improving upon your record obviously bloodhound project uh, is something to certainly uh, acknowledge there have been desires attempts fits and starts more often than not it's funding that is the shortfall that has kept uh, the the pursuit of advancing land speed record to new heights know that you have uh, been involved uh, and or supporting curious if you think Richard if we will ever move beyond the record you've set or do you think this might stand Marshall I hope we move on I really do I mean you know if you if you hold a world record it's great to have a, hold it for a couple of days or so you know to be able to get used to that but uh, after that you know it's boring and you need to move on um, yeah, and of course we moved on to do the Bloodhound, and we learnt something very amazing with the Bloodhound, which was um, the educational power of this thing. Uh, curious enough, um, Andy worked for the Ministry of Defence, and um, he somehow, I don't know how the hell he did it, but somehow he engineered a, a meeting with the minister responsible for buying all the equipment and ships and F-35s and so on. And we had a meeting with this guy at lunchtime. And uh, our objective was to ask him for the jet engines. Um, and um, when we got, when we sort of got there to ask him for the jet engines, he, he just uh, he just said no, he wasn't going to do anything. He was just not interested. So um, Andy and I sort of got up to uh, to go to the door and thanked him for his time. 
And he stopped us, and he said, there's something you can do for us. So I said, yeah, sure, what's that? And he said, well, we've got an enormous problem. We cannot, um, we're getting very poor quality education kids from the British education system, which is centrally controlled and, uh, and so on. And uh, he said, it's, we're having enormous problems. The quality is so bad. And um, this was absolutely fascinating. He said, um, you see, way back in the, uh, the 1960s and 70s, when the Concord Project got going, um, we never had this problem because the excitement of the kids, um, basically, with you know, the building of these supersonic airplanes, um, was just amazing. And every time that Concorde flew anywhere, everybody was just absolutely polaxed by it. And that simply just changed the whole country. And the number of scientists and engineers they got as a direct result of this was enormous. And he said, what I want you to do is to run the project through all the schools in Britain. So I thought, well, if we go ahead and do that, then um, with a bit of luck, uh, he might just give us the engines. <laughs> so we went ahead and did it, and it became absolutely enormous. We became the largest uh, STEM, science, technology, engineering, mathematics program in Britain. We're moving 120,000 kids um, a year. It's absolutely enormous. It's changing the place, which is really good. Um, uh, the money was a nightmare, absolute nightmare. I, um, I did 11 years of this and 55,000 man hours. And uh, we kind of thought we got there when uh, the Geely Car Company came on board from China. And I love those guys. They were really good. Uh, they took a huge gamble with us, decided to join us. And uh, they came up and they signed on board and they made their first payment. But then the British government, um, having uh, reviewed the entire project and spent the better part of seven months uh, on us, getting all our data and everything else, uh, made us an offer, which was great. We could meet all our conditions. And so we had a meeting with them and said, fine, well, we've got the Chinese now. and Go on, we need your money now. And they just ran away. Uh, it really was pathetic. And it was, uh, and so we couldn't do it. And obviously, from the Chinese's point of view, they just didn't want to be the sole sponsor for all this. And uh, that was that. And um, so we kept the project going, trying to turn it around. And eventually, the government, the Secretary of State, apologized and uh, uh, renewed the deal. But by that time, uh, Geely were on to something else. And we, the whole country was into Brexit, and there was no money. So it had to then go into uh, um, administration. Um, and um, that's your equivalent to Chapter 11. Yeah. And um, it was bought by a guy called Ian Warhurst, and he took the team to South Africa onto a, our special desert there in South Africa, and they did get 628 miles an hour. But he decided he wasn't going to take it any further, so that was a real shame. So it's currently up for sale. And I hope somebody will come forward and do it, you know. Um, but um, I don't know. There seems to be a lot of reluctance within Britain, which is just uh, just a great shame. All I can say is really hope that some folks step up at some point in time here before too long to continue this fine tradition. It's just been a wonderful area of achievement and ambition that is not betrothed to massive regulations and such as most racing uh, series or organizations happen to be. It's just really one of the few wide open frontiers left from a vehicular competition yeah, right. standpoint not as if it would be bad if your record held but just the idea of folks uh endeavoring and beavering away to try and 
set new heights uh something that i hope that we do not uh, do not lose richard thank you so much for taking t- some time here your book take risk it truly it's a delight just a delight and i hope folks go and pick up a copy and read through because there's so much in there that we did not get to uh but thank you once again for taking some time marshall thank you thank you for your questions and thank you for your research just to say how very much i've enjoyed this and i hope we can get together and have a beer sometime amen brother richard thanks again to mr noble for spending almost an hour with us evro publishing take risk please take that book home you will love it really do appreciate his cracking into some amazing things no like i said land speed record competitions not exactly a mainstream thing but i hope as you heard from him oh boy wild stories some pretty amazing stuff so thanks once again to y'all for listening and to our partners at cooper tires the justice brothers torontomotorsports.com i'm marshall pruitt we'll speak to you soon